Good morning. You know, scriptures have, a, I guess, an, a point A and a point B, the beginning of all things where the Lord created mankind and then mankind fell in, in worship of its own self and having its own way. And from point A to point B, point B being when we are uh, released from the sinful body that we have uh, made for ourselves in the fall, I guess is how I would say it, that we will be released from that body to be present with the Lord in all freeness and and in worship before him in moments like we just had to be like the, the regular for us every day, every moment to be lifting uh, his his name up in praise and and what we celebrate when we come into the Christmas season and what we sing about when it comes to where it all went is is the, the Lord covering from the point A to the point, I keep doing this in reverse, the point A, for those of you looking this way, to the point B, that Jesus has come to redeem or rescue or to pay for the ugliness of our point A to give us a promise of a point B. And we saying about that just a moment ago and being thankful and saying hallelujah or praise the Lord to the one who came and made a way that his birth and what we celebrate at Christmas was all pointing towards that payment for the point B and that we would be with him for all of eternity. Along the way, he gives us hope of that. He gives us glimpses of that. And then he calls us to continue to to grow in our understanding and our anticipation of being with him. And so um, this week in particular, I would ask you to be praying for the McGowan family, Dan and Lisa, who are very near and dear to our hearts, lost dad this week, uh, Dan Sr., Dan's father, uh, who had been ill for quite some time, and his wife Claudine used to attend faith here. And and uh, so we just want to pray for the family and just thank God for a legacy of faithfulness and godliness and, and all that Dan and Lisa have benefited from in that. So we continue to pray for them and, and encourage them as you see them. And, uh, and I always feel like sometimes I like to mention the people that we know can't be with us and what they're going through and stuff. Did anybody remember Romper Room? Showing my age here. I want to get that swirly thing out and saying, I see this person and I see this person and I see this person. But the reality is, is that we do have a lot of people who are not able to be with us because they're going through various illnesses or difficulties or things that are keeping them from being with us in public. And so every once in a while, a name comes to mind. And uh, my wife and I have been praying for and appreciate Marlene Bernier, who is not able to be here and is dealing with some uh, challenging, very significant, challenging health issues and stuff. So as the ladies have gotten to know Marlene, you know, she's a sweet presence and, uh, and just a lovely lady. And so um, has been with us in our church for the last couple of years and, um, and, and came to this understanding of sort of this walking with the Lord later on in life. And so it just goes to show uh, what the Lord can do in his grace and over time. And so just be praying for Marlene as she battles with this as well. Um, but there's a lot of people right, that are going through challenges and sickness right now, especially, and, and those things we anticipate and pray that they will pass as well. 
But all of this brings us to the season that we're in, and I hope you will forgive me for not having for the month of December a very traditional Christmas-themed series. Um, I will confess to you that I struggle with those kinds of creative ideas and stuff. I feel like, what can we say that hasn't been said before? And then the other little, the real little angel on my shoulder says, people don't need something new, they need something faithful. And that's what having an annual tradition reminds us of is that we are anchored to these things that are, are uh, common and, and knowable to us and stuff. And so I go back and forth with that. And so um, we will uh, speak specifically about Christmas before the season is over. And we'll be preparing ourselves for our Christmas Eve service, which will be special as well. But as we lead up to that time period, I thought what I would give you is a Christmas gift because I'm that kind of guy. And we started opening up that gift last week, and you might have missed, or I didn't put a sermon series title up there in time or something, but the gift that I want to give to you, or really the one I hope that the Lord wants to give to you, is a new family by Christmas. Now, some of you are suppressing your reaction to that, because you're like, if I say, yes, finally, then I'll be outed as somebody who doesn't appreciate my family and stuff like that. But the reality is, is that, is that as we uh, focus on a seasonal uh, milestone, something like Christmas, it gives us an opportunity to think about what could be different this Christmas around. I was enjoying sort of catching up with some of my friends this morning about how their Thanksgiving went and, and hearing how the, the time around family was enjoyable and it was a blessing to them and stuff. And it's like these little milestones or these, these, um, these markers that we have in life, we're able to say things like so much better than last year, or we haven't had a, a Thanksgiving like this in years. And so it was very meaningful to us. Now, in my um, experience in talking with families and working with marriages in particular, when you have a goal that's out there, it's just a few months away or it's a, a month away or something, it gives us something to sink our teeth into. Like if the Lord's calling me to change and go through some adjustments, when could I expect to see some progress from this? When would I expect to have some reward for all of my efforts or my surrenders or things? And it's no different when we talk about changes in our families. We have come to this point in Ephesians chapter 5 in particular of seeing what the Lord has designed for the family. And as we come to Christmas, wouldn't it be great to go through a Christmas season unlike any that you've been through before because the Lord has done something significant in your family. I believe that these things are possible and I believe that even just the earliest amount of surrender to what God has built and designed and his challenge for the family goes a long way An exponential change. It's like throwing gas on a small spark. It seems to ignite quickly in particular with the uh, subject of which what we're going to talk about this morning. What I'll be calling our men to, in particular our husbands to, this morning will will be something that perhaps might spark in you a desire to make a momentary surrender. That sounds good. I'm going to do that. That's right. You know what? You've convinced me I'm going to be that way. But the work won't end with a momentary surrender. What we understand from the gospel is that Jesus says that for us each and every day we are to pick up our cross in order to follow him. That this isn't just something that we say, okay, I made my my line in the sand. Things are going to be different. I'm going to um, uh, influence or I'm going to lead differently or I'm going to live differently before the light of the Lord. And since I've made that decision on November 27th there, it's all good. Now it's just going to happen. 
No, what we find is that daily surrenders are what build new habits. And that new habits create lasting change. And that lasting change brings peace and joy. I told you this would be a Christmas message. We get to talk about peace and joy. So when we come to this part of Ephesians 5, we've, we've shifted for the moment from our conversation with wives to our conversation towards men. And, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because when we think of men in marriage or men in relationships in general, we already dock a lot of points from them, don't we? That men are just terrible at relationships. They just don't get it the way that women do. And, and there's some truth to the aspects of a relationship that come more naturally, I would say, generally speaking, for women than they do men. But, but the Lord didn't put them in a relationship just for them to be useless, just for them to have nothing to offer. So it could be our cultural perspective. It could be our bias towards the way that men approach relationships that might get us to think, well, they're just no good at it. Is that really the case? I believe that men can do relationships very well when they're centered on the right focus. Or the right task. Men, uh, women seem to be more geared towards the expression part of a relationship. And men seem to be focused on the fact that there is a job to be done. A task to be achieved. And so again, if we align our focus to Lord, what is the task you want me to achieve in my relationship? Then I think that all of a sudden the strengths and the abilities that men can bring to a relationship will start to shine. So men, I have a task for you this morning. I am calling you to determine to make your marriage your number one priority. Now, I'm, I'm trying to not just give you another um, uh, aspect of this. Like, If you just look at this as another slice of your pie, okay, Brent, now great. Now I got to make her the most important thing while I'm trying to raise kids. I'm trying to be good at my job. I'm trying to carve a little bit of time to have some fun. I got to pay the bills. Um, I, the politics stuff is throwing me through a curve. All of these things that I have, have, have soaked myself into and found myself in the middle of, and now you're asking me to make this even more important. This isn't just another slice of the pie as we have a tendency to organize our lives in the various things that we're responsible towards. This isn't a distraction from the more important things, but instead is a filter through which you see everything else. Yes, even your service to the Lord. And I am certainly not giving you guys yet another lecture on being willing to take long walks to get more flowers, to buy more chocolates. Those things aren't bad. Wives don't throw eggs at me. Now, scriptural instruction, though, towards husbands is not very heavy on the romance. Song of Solomon aside, if you ever want a little bit of a risque reading, you know, go into Song of Solomon and be like, okay, these people love each other. And that's a good thing about marriage. But, but there isn't a lot of instruction of the same kind of pressures that we put on men to be more in touch with your feelings, to be better at the kinds of things that wives appreciate more. I'm not saying that, guys, you're off the hook, that we don't have to do that. It's just why doesn't the scripture seem to emphasize that at every turn? Where did all that emphasis come from? I believe it's because Jesus has a bigger mission for you husbands than just doing some of those surface level things. 
And we'll discover hopefully together in the scriptures today what that mission is. And I believe that this is going to be part A of a two-part talk with our men. So enjoy that. Now, last week, as we were getting into this subject of families and, and sort of uh, preparing ourselves or engaging in a new family for Christmas, we understood that biblical Christianity does not denigrate women, but instead includes them and gives them purpose in the mission that God has for each and every one of us. And that specifically for our wives, submission is about putting Christ on display and putting his authority even over the husband's authority and focusing on what you bring to the Lord as opposed to even what you would do for your husband. And we started to getting little glimpses towards our husbands in that when we said that husbands, your authority was equal to responsibility, not control, but responsibility as all in the light of Christ and what Jesus demonstrated for us. So it's in that vein that we step into this new territory of our scriptures when we just see this tiny little verse, very clear instruction, straightforward messages, which is what we guys appreciate. Just give it to me straight. Tell me what I need to know and what I need to do. So, so Paul says, okay, I'm going to tell you, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ excuse me, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Remember, ladies, we were talking last week about the fact that that culture seems to pick on uh, biblical Christianity or even cultural Christianity for having left women in the dust, for teaching passages like this in a way that puts them down and elevates again the masculine headship and leadership and, and authority of men. But understanding that even Paul's addressing women in this culture was a form of elevation that, yes, you deserve to hear the message too, that you dear, you are uh, belong directly to the Lord. And so he has a direct message for you as his daughter and as these men's sisters in Christ. So look for that subtly again in the first part of verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Yes, this is a message to husbands, but in that first century church, every wife's ear would have perked up and said, what, what? They have to love me. This isn't just a luck of the draw. It isn't just me doing the duties that I'm supposed to do, but, but actually there's something I get out of this too, that he's responsible for husbands. Love your wives, not in the way that you think I'm saying, or not in the way that you've determined, or not even in the way that you've been doing all along, but as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Simply put, husbands, that we are to demonstrate love through sacrifice. And so my goal this morning, my aim is to sharpen your focus on the best task that you could ever have in your life, rather than it just being yet again, another slice of the pie, another area of responsibility. Okay, now I got to do this perfectly too. Just like our ladies, our men have been beaten up in our culture and they're, they're wayward because the, 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 the model or the goal keeps moving on them. The target keeps shifting. And so that men are often left without an aim of who am I supposed to be? I don't know what she wants from me. And it seems as though just when I get good at something, she seems to change her mind. 
Forget the fact that it took me 10 years to finally get good at that. And she's allowed to change herself after 10 years. But, but the point is, is that she keeps moving the target too. I have no idea how to keep her happy. I have no idea how to be good at this. I have no idea if I'm upholding the, the role or the fashion that society would have for me. I have no idea how to do this. And our men struggle greatly with this, even though I believe that the scriptural task is straightforward and clear because we've been given a model. We've been given the perfect example of how to do this. So I want us to start off, men, with understanding that you and I can make our position about responsibility, not privilege. Let's go deeper into our, well, let's go back, actually, to last week's text. We go back just a few verses in Ephesians 5 to hear again the instruction to wives, but we're going to sift out of it this idea of how Jesus used his position. In verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And understanding, remember we said last week that there's a a line in here that many would like to explain away that the, the husband is the head of the wife. Well, really what that means is it's like the head is like the brain. It's the source of all the other function. And so it comes from there. And I challenged us to not pass away that or not to uh, be dismissive of the fact that with authority or with the, the position of a husband comes authority. But with that authority along every stage of the game, Jesus has demonstrated that that authority was to be taken with responsibility, not just control, not just domineering. When you see it in the context of who Jesus was and everything that he did as a demonstration to his church, who was his bride, then we have no problem comparing this headship to one of authority. Husbands have been given a God-given position as the heads in their home. Now, uh, some of you will remember Vernon Miller, who used to live with us and was a father figure to us and a grandfather figure to my kids and everything. And he would spend every day down at Jorgensen's coffee shop and he would engage with all people from all walks of life. But in in particular, he loved to talk to the students who were from, say, Colby or Thomas or something like that. He loved that age group. He loved where their minds were going in the sense of they could be challenged and they needed to think about all things culturally and stuff. And since he was a geezer, he could get away with saying anything. It was beautiful. And I would pick him up every day and I would just be like, how do you get away with saying these things? And he's like, look at me. What are they going to do? And I remember we've got Colby students some Thomas students and stuff here and stuff. Just think about how this question would go down. Bring it up in class. I encourage you. He would, he would say to the, the uh, young women he would meet, he would say, Hey, I have a question for you. Do you believe that the husband is the head of the home? And I'm like, how are you still alive? How did they not? <laughs> he said, well, I want to. I want to just investigate. He goes, I, I just, I'm taking my own data. And he goes, I've noticed over, over the decades that, that it used to be like, well, you know, I wish they would be, or if they just assumed that position well, and they did it honorably, then yeah, I could see that and everything. It turned into that to now, all of a sudden, as you would not be surprised to hear that it's much more about, oh, no, 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 no. That's a shared responsibility, equal in the house. Nobody has the lead, that kind of thing. And that was the takeaway from that, that there is no such thing as head of the house because that equaled 
an authoritarian mindset, which of course, as we know, has been abused and, and, uh, and, and has perpetrated a lot of abuses on, on people. And so we, we kick against that. We move against that. Yet there's the subtle expectation or the subtle appreciation for when somebody seems to do that well. If they happen to be a benevolent or a good boss or a CEO or something like that, then we happen to say, well, that's a good use of authority. They're taking their position and their resources and they're doing, they're being good for the people that work for them and everything. That's the kind of quote unquote headship we can get behind this is the biblical picture that's been given to us is that headship is not of a cracking of a whip or it's not of a bossing or commanding around it's something far different it isn't about building our own kingdom of privilege but instead taking on a greater responsibility I don't know if it's fair that we keep picking on the 1950s, but it seems like that comes up a lot. Well, we're not talking about the 1950s. I wasn't around for the 1950s. Some of you might have been, and some of you might have been old enough to get a a sense of the tone of what was going on in the 50s. But for whatever reason, it is picked on as the the height of that male-dominated leadership, and the wife is just silent, submits, wears the apron, has the roast ready every every evening for dinner, and that kind of thing. And that probably has a lot to do with what we saw in the advertisements happening in those days and stuff like that. But husbands, we have a choice as to how to how we perceive and execute our authority. If we're trying to get back to an image where it just seemed like a simpler time, things made more sense. That is a fantasy that will never, ever be available. Something tells me that in the 1950s, it was difficult to figure out marriage then, too. For different reasons. No, instead, we need to look to the role model, the one who transcends whatever culture is saying from decade or generation to generation. That Jesus' example and his model for how to be the head of anything supersedes all that we've come up with over the generations. So if Jesus is the role model, then we should seek to approach it the same if we just knew what he did. I believe that in order for us husbands to make our position about responsibility and not privilege, we have to engage in willful sacrifice. And last week we dipped into Philippians 2 and noted that it was one of the premier passages that talks about the lowliness that Jesus applied to himself in order to accomplish the mission. So let me just read the paragraph. We get into Philippians 2, verses 3 through 7. Scripture says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Let that sink in for a second. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. I feel like we could close the text, fold the sermon notes, and if every one of us said, okay, that's me from here on out, no more selfish ambition or conceit, that so many of these issues and problems would fix themselves. Do we not get ourselves in trouble the most because we have our own agenda and those agendas very are, are very seldom ever realized? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours, which is a God-given gift for all of those who are in Christ. To take on his example, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, when the scripture says that Jesus emptied himself, theologians have really beat this up and they've talked about, did he limit his power? What was it all going on when he said he emptied himself? Did he give up his godlike characteristics just to be able to say, oh, I'm no longer God. I'm just a man here and stuff. But we've seen too many examples of Jesus when he was on this earth to have those supernatural abilities and to have those godlike characteristics. Really what's going on when it says Jesus emptied himself is he didn't become less God, but he surrendered his Godness to complete a specific role or a task. In other words, he didn't claim all that was available to him and that he possessed and instead submitted those things to the task of a humble process towards the cross. He surrendered to a role. There's an image that's going on here in the original language that gives us this idea of a slave ship moving in a particular direction. And of course, a slave ship is going to be powered by the muscle and the, and the, and the strength of slaves who are rowing and rowing. And so Jesus has every right because of his status as God, the creator of all things to be, he is the captain of the ship and he is above deck and he's just doing this. You know how they just kind of steer a little bit like just to kind of look important and everything. Jesus has every right to be up there at the helm doing this and watching where the ship goes. But what he did, according to Philippians 2, is that he surrendered his post from the helm and he went down below and he grabbed an oar sitting side by side with the slaves and started to row as well. Why? Because the ship has to get to its destination. For a lot of time, I, I left the illustration in my mind right there that Jesus surrendered his role as captain, went down, took a place on this, on the bench next to the slaves and rode. But ultimately what happens in the, in the carrying out of the gospel is he eventually releases the slaves from the burden of rowing that ship and says, go up and get some sun, hang your feet off into the water a little bit, enjoy the ride a little bit. I got this. This is what Jesus did for us is that he surrendered all of his uh, of his godness and he came below to make sure that the ship, which is the destination of the salvation of our souls to pay the price for our sins. And he relieved us of that role of being slaves. All of this starts to form in the mind of a godly husband, one who wants to live biblically and and as Jesus it starts to form an image of what role should I be playing? What expectations should I have of the life that I find myself in? Husband, your obsession with perhaps your title or your status or your income or any of the things that you've been pursuing in this world rather than the duty that you have by God will sink your mission every time. The more you get hung up on, but I deserve to be at the helm. I'm the one doing this. That's not her place. That's not their place. That's not, I deserve that. That's what I have. That's what I need. And I'll sacrifice anything to be seen as the guy who can handle it. Focusing on that rather than the responsibility of making sure the ship gets to its destination will distract you. It will sink your ship every time. Uh, like I did last week with Laura Corrette, who oversees our women's ministry, I reached out to Jeff Dion 
who works with our men here amongst a, uh, a great team of leadership and things. And I asked him again to bounce some of these things around in his mind. What is it that, that he senses that men need their challenge with and, and their encouragement in as, as we talk about these very difficult things and, and hard things to pin down? And Jeff was able to get back to me and say, I don't think we could overemphasize the importance of having an intentional approach to sacrifice and suffering. In fact, I know that's what they'll be emphasizing in this year coming up with our men. To be intentional in our approach to sacrifice and suffering. To expect both, he says. And to ask, how do I intend to become more sacrificial? And how will I prepare myself to grow through the suffering I'm sure to experience. And I just love that mindset. Again, I love the focus of our men here at Faith. I love the the humility and the honesty that I sense and I get from so many of you who are struggling to do this and figuring out, Lord, if you could just tell me how to do it better, I'm in. I will do it. I appreciate Jeff's thoughts with that and be praying for our men as we move forward into that season of how do we go after suffering and sacrifice by design and intention when all of culture is saying, find an easier place to go, get that more comfortable chair, have your weekends to yourself. You've earned it. You're a hard worker. You can drop all those responsibilities. How do we engage in sacrifice and suffering? How do we make our position about responsibility and not the privilege we feel we deserve? Our sacrifice needs to be willful. And we also have to embrace honorable ob- obscurity. We've been talking about the cultural pendulum swing about how we have a tendency as people just in society because we don't really know, we don't have a set standard like we do in the scriptures. Culture doesn't have that set standard. So the pendulum swing says we have to overemphasize this. And then when it comes back, we've got to course correct and overemphasize that. And we never have a tendency to find what that balance is and what that middle is. And culture's pendulum swing right now has muted the presence and the voice has taken the spotlight away from strong and capable men. And we have a tendency to kind of look at what really does masculinity look like? How does it uh, execute in a society that you're not supposed to overemphasize those kinds of things? Please hear me. This is where I believe that the church has gotten things wrong some 20-ish years ago in attempt to overcourse correct and let that pendulum swing in the church and say, enough about this church business being about the women. We've got to reclaim some of that. We've got to make it more about the men and everything. And there's a part of that that I quickly got swept up into. I've been in church for a long, long time. And I get the point that because that women have a tendency to be the most uh, present and most prominent members of most assemblies, that the personality, the flavor, the flair, whatever, has a tendency to take on those feminine characteristics. And the claim was men don't have a place in church. We have to make it more manly for men to have a place in church. So we used to joke about we're going to put moose heads in the entryway and we're going to like camo the carpets and all these kinds of things. Because that's what men want. That's what men need. But we know that ultimately those things aren't what Christ is calling us to. If we participate in the pendulum swing, we can easily make it about the characteristics that our own personal flesh needs tickled or scratched. And we say, well, it's time to be more masculine. It's time to be more manly. Is that what the gospel is calling us to? Last week, we dove into a passage for just a moment that I'm actually going to take some time to read here. Um, and and I, I think this will help us with this understanding of, is it about us reclaiming our manliness versus doing something a little bit different? 
Back in Matthew 20, the scene was again that, that uh, James and John, their mom was coming to Jesus and saying, my boys are really good. They're really faithful to you. And what mother's heart wouldn't want to see these men elevated and escalated? Would you please let them sit on, and when you go to glory and you're in eternity and you're ruling and reigning as king, can my boys be on either side of you next to your throne? This big audacious request. Jesus in dealing with this whole thing of like, you know, are you guys going to be able to follow me and what I'm about to go to? Oh, yeah, yeah, we can do it. We can do it. He says, well, not so fast. And he uses this to pull the guys aside and says, look, I'm going to make something very, very clear to you here. This whole idea, remember when we were studying John that Jesus' fame was growing and it seemed like he was going out of his way to dismiss the crowds, to avoid the popularity and the fame. And we said that many of them wanted him to be a political king and a ruler and stuff. There was that aspect of it. He said, that's not my mission. I'm going to, I'm coming for the hearts, not for the political power, but also the fact that they were looking into power as being popular, power as being influential to all people in the culture. So Jesus says to the disciples, listen, let's get something straight. Verse 25, he calls to them and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Guys, this is a part of your culture. Anybody gets a position and they are the top dog and their great ones exercise authority over them. It's not going to be that way among you. I won't stand for it. I won't have it. You haven't seen that in me. If anyone's going to be great among you, you must, they must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Sometimes we guys, we get that sense about us that, you know, when's my time to stand out? When am I going to get to be who I always imagined I could be when I was a young boy looking into my future? When is it going to be about the respect I can finally get? And those things matter to the heart of a man. But as we see what Jesus is spelling out, we understand it isn't about men reclaiming dominion, but about pointing to Jesus who is winning the war on sin. The most masculine thing anybody could ever do is to lay down your life for somebody else and to win the entire battle as a result of that death. And that's what Jesus is doing. Earlier, he had said to them before giving them this course correction, he had said in verse 18, he says, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him. It's talking about himself. They'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. To be what? Humiliated, brought low, mocked, and flogged, and crucified. And, or we could say, but, he will be raised on the third day. The the manliest of all men, the toughest of all men in seeing what he was able to endure, motivated by his love and responsibility for us, walked through the mocking and the humiliation, the flogging and the crucifixion only to win the war to be raised the third day. You see, what headship aims to be is the first to sacrifice for those that he loves, not the one to win one for himself. 
This is how we make our position, our God-given headship about responsibility and not privilege. Secondly, and this is something we'll only get through partway here. Secondly, husbands, make your mission about your wife's provision, not your own peace. Now I'm meddling. I I went from preaching to meddling in about five seconds there. One thing was just a Bible study. We're doing a Bible study. Now I'm messing with guys' desire for solitude. What is it with us men that we would take the house so completely removed from society, way up on a hill, we would get our groceries delivered to us once a month, and they better drop it off on a Tuesday, and I'll pick it up on a Thursday just so no one's there to greet me when I go pick them up from the end of the road. We just love our solitude. We love getting away. We love our privacy, even though it isn't healthy for us long term. That we desire peace. We desire a simple path in our life. Just make it this. I don't want to do the drama. I just want to know what's happening. I want to be able to, to keep it all in balance. And so we often desire solitude to get away from all the pressures and the changing things around us. But the gospel would call us men not to make the mistake of, of equating solitude with peace. Partly because it's incompatible with how you've been created. I know that that might seem weird. But we were not created to be alone. We saw that demonstrated in Adam when he was starting to name all the animals. And he was handling the work fine. And he was just sensing this growing loneliness. There isn't one comparable to me. There isn't one that's fitted for me. Don't buy the lie that if you could just get your alone time, everything would be all right. If people wouldn't depend on you so much, then you'd be able to make sense of the world. Isolation is incompatible with your created design, and it's also inconsistent with your calling in Christ. No, instead, understand that peace comes when godly priorities are in order in your life and you are sensing that the purpose that God has built you for and called you for is being fulfilled. And that will be best exercised in how you approach those that are in your care. So let's go deeper into our text in Ephesians 5. I want you to notice the the word he in the first two verses, it says that he, that's Jesus, might sanctify her, that's the wife, that's the bride, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now in the same way, in the way that Jesus just did that for the bride, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The world would get that backwards. He who loves himself can love his wife. That's not what the scripture says, does it? He who loves himself is already, I mean, he who loves his wife is already loving himself because Paul says logically, no no man, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. If we are going to do what Jesus has done for her, we're not going to have to do it all because he does the spiritual cleansing. He does the healing, the sanctifying and and making her holy. But he says that we are to do so in a similar way. 
that we are to bring a cleansing attention to our wives, that we are to make sure that she is in a position to know and experience the cleansing power that only Jesus Christ can bring. Why would Jesus do that? Because he set your wife apart for his use, not even your own. Jesus says, she's my daughter. She's a part of my bride who is the church. I am making her holy. I am consecrating her. I am setting her apart and purifying her for my purposes in my use. Not your own, but for mine. A biblical husband sees that and understands what his mission is to make sure that she is portraying that, that, or she is, she is engaging with the Lord in that direct fashion and that he is to portray that act that Jesus has done for us. It is a heavy task to bear, but an important picture to honor. You know, in the Old Testament, one of the more moving settings for um, a passage of scripture that I've come across is found in the book of Hosea. And there's certainly a lot of prophecy that comes from the prophet Hosea. But what draws me in is how Hosea was called and what he was supposed to be presenting or the image that he was supposed to be um, uh, or the picture that he was supposed to be painting for all who were looking on it. Let's go into Hosea's life for just a moment back in chapter one. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, Big deal to get called a prophet and to be used and hear the voice of the Lord. So what does the Lord do with this, with this opportunity to speak to Hosea? He says, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land. The reason why I want you to go find the prostitute, marry her and have children with her is because the land of Israel commits great whoredom by forsaking me who is their Lord. So he went and took Gomer a very unfortunate name for this, I'm sure, lovely lady. He went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. There's not a lot of detail given to us. There's not a lot of, was there any romance? Was there any setup? Was it just simply like, I pick you and since you take money, here you go. Is that enough? You got to come and be my wife and have my children and stuff. I don't know all the setup of that, but if we're just thinking in terms of what's between the lines, couldn't we imagine that this is a massive undertaking for someone like Hosea? He says, no, wait a second. I'm here being chosen to be a prophet or the voice of the Lord. You want me to scar my reputation. I've remained pure and available to the Lord, holy and consecrated. And you want me to go to that seedy part of town, pick that person who's done unspeakable things. And I know she's not going to be faithful to me. She's not coming to me because she saw something in my eyes or because she, she remembers our first date. You want me to just go handpick her like I'm going to get cattle at the market. And I'm supposed to start a family with this person all because you want to make a point to Israel that this is what they do to you. God says, yes, that's what I want you to do. The people have been unfaithful to me and they will continue to be unfaithful to me just as this woman will continue to be unfaithful to you. There's an indication here that that once in that profession for her, she will be tempted and drawn back into it. And I think we get this indication as we jump a couple chapters forward in chapter three. The Lord says to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. There's no mention of new names, new children, anything like that. 
This is a repeat visit to Gomer, who has done what she's always done, was never in love with this man to begin with, or maybe thought, hey, I'm being rescued, but it didn't last long. So he says, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a left tech of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. This is an incredible challenge that Homer has before him. I mean, that uh, Hosea has before him. Uh, I, I wish I had got, grabbed the lyrics for you to, to see and stuff, but Andrew Peterson, a Christian singer, had come up with a song uh, uh, called Hosea, simply called Hosea, and he captures this from, the, uh, from Gomer's perspective, and he tells the story as the one who is unfaithful and, and feels the draw of the city and things. I had the opportunity to confront Andrew Peterson about his song, because one time I had some family over, and it was like in the month of December, it was around a, a week or so now from where we are now, and we just had his new album on in the background and we're just enjoying our time talking maybe playing games and then the song Hosea comes on and I've never heard it before and I'm starting to listen from this interesting take about Gomer's uh, uh, tendencies to want to be drawn away from this simple life or this straight laced life it's not what she's familiar with it's a world she doesn't fit in anymore and I, I was able to confront Andrew Peterson and say you ruined my Christmas party because we all got drawn into this and our hearts started breaking for Hosea. This prophet who just loved this woman perhaps and was, was wanting her to remain faithful and he just wanted it to work out because that's what God had commanded him. And in the song, uh, Andrew Peterson says, she, she says, at night I hear the pulse of the city calling me away. And she sings about his, his, his naivete and saying, Hosea, you're a lovable, gullible man. As though God hadn't commanded this of him to take on this mission and this task to love her despite her adulteries and her unfaithfulness. And every time he would go back into the city and pull her out of the alleys and the rooms and the th places that she was being victimized in and giving her soul over to. And Hosea would rescue her over and over again in this song. And the beautiful image that we have of all that God does to us to chase us down to our dark alleys, to chase us down to the places, the seedy places that we give pieces of our soul away to. And he says, but I love you anyway, despite your proclivities, despite the being drawn away by the pulse of the city. Guys, I started off by saying that we men respond well to tasks or to mission. If that were given to you as a mission to love such a woman, would you take it on? Would you say, I'm, I'm honoring a picture much bigger than my own. I'm representing to people who have no idea the faithfulness of God. I'm representing to, to them all that he is and all that he's been to me. If you said, well, if you made the mission that big, then yeah, okay. If I knew what it would pay off and I knew they'd write about me thousands of years later in something like the Bible or something like that, I would do that. I would take it on. I would say for most of us, we've been called to a much easier task. For most of us, we are called to love a woman who tries to be faithful to us. We are called to love a woman who tries to support the things that we uh, agree with or appreciate or enjoy. 
And yet we still, because of the hardness of our hearts, we make our position or our responsibility about the things that we deserve or the things that we expect to get out of the equation. But what we see from the scriptures as we get started in this is that every husband's mission is to do what is necessary for their bride to both encounter Jesus and to put on display his great grace and his love. As I said, we'll finish this section out next week, Lord willing. But I just want to leave us with this this morning. I believe a change in perspective can bring a, uh, a change in our lives, even as quickly as something like Christmas is just a few weeks away. I think for a husband and yes, even a wife, as some of these things have come to apply to you today and what you've been hearing. But as a husband says, no, I'm starting to hear what you're saying, that I have been lazy, perhaps, about my sacrifice, that I haven't been as intentional about the suffering that I should and can be willing to uh, endure for the cause of my family. That I'm starting to hear this call and I'm starting to understand that if I surrender myself to this change, that God can have a profound impact and effect in my relationship even immediately. It's been my vantage point to see when a husband starts getting their lives turned on to the Lord, that that change and impact and blessing starts flowing through a family quicker than anything else I've ever seen. Yes, have I talked to uh, women who have been the, uh, the, the block or the dam, if you will, to the free flowingness of the Holy Spirit in the life of a family? Absolutely. It's difficult for people to let go of control. But every time I've seen that woman say, it's not about me making him who I, who I want him to be. It's about me turning him over to the influence of the Lord and letting him hear the Lord's voice. And every time I've seen a husband step into that role and take that responsibility, I've seen change almost overnight in the family. Husband, your mission is to provide only what you can. And that's enough because Jesus has provided everything she needs. You and I are simply called to imitate. You and I are simply call, called to do likewise. So let your sacrifice or your duty be that which fulfills you, be, be that which gives you purpose. Lord, I want to thank you, Father, for bringing us together this morning. I want to thank you, Lord, for the marriages that you've blessed this church with and blessed our culture and society with, Lord. In so many ways, Lord, this is a simple way for us to be countercultural, to put you on display before a world who is still wrestling with the definitions of things and still trying to see which way is north and which way is south and find that direction that will get, bring them fulfillment. Lord, we've had the keys to this for centuries. Help us, Lord, to submit to this simple and straightforward calling. Lord, help us to understand what our roles are as we passionately and faithfully chase you down. Lord, be pleased with our praise this morning. Lord, be pleased with our attention to your word. Change us, Lord, by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to please stand.